0: Hi, I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of King's College London and the Leverhulme Trust, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be a very special one. To celebrate the 50th episode of the podcast, I'm going to be doing a conversation with my two colleagues in Greek philosophy here at King's College. So I'd like to welcome M.M. McCabe. Hi. And Raphael Wolff. Hi, Peter. To the podcast. And the topic we're going to be looking at today is Aristotle's response to Plato. And I guess that a lot of us were brought up with a kind of cliched idea about how Aristotle reacts to Plato, namely quite negatively. So Plato basically comes up in the works of Aristotle as a target or someone who has theories that need to be demolished. And I think that something the three of us agree about is that that's much too simple a way of thinking about it. So, Rafal, could you maybe start us off by saying why there might be a more positive picture of the way Aristotle reacts to Plato?
1: Yeah, um, there was... I mean, the the view that Aristotle is basically trying to sort of blow Plato out of the water, um, to put it technically, is quite a was quite an influential one, I think still is in some people's minds. But I think maybe one of the ways to think about why that might not be quite right, is perhaps to think about Aristotle's own methodology. And he's very, in certain places at least, very explicit about this. And one of the things Aristotle seems really interested in is preserving as many views as possible, both, to use the cliché phrase, among the many and among the wise. So he tends to think that if human beings generally have a certain view about something, there's going to be a grain of truth in that view. He has a very positive view basically about what other people's beliefs are going to be like and are going to be worth taking notice of. Um, So if you actually read the methodology, he doesn't say my job is to show how all these other blokes are wrong and how I'm right. He says my job is to account for as many of the other views that are out there as I can, both in terms of views that human beings seem to hold generally, as far as he's concerned. So that's the many. And also views that, you know, clever people who've spent a lot of time thinking about the issues, the wise, you'd expect, you know, you'd expect them to be somewhere near the truth, given that they're really clever and spent all this time on it. So actually, if you start with Aristotle's own professed methodology, it would be very surprising if, if what came out the other end was something like this really great guy, Plato, and there's no question Aristotle thinks you know, he was a student of Plato, You know, he was a great guy, that he'd end up saying Plato got it all wrong. Now, that's not a knock-down argument, but it's a way, I think, of equipping ourselves to have a look at what Aristotle then says a bit more specifically in the light of his own methodology, and that might suggest that we wouldn't be getting a demolition of Plato. We'd be getting something at least much more nuanced from somebody who seems to think that there's always going to be some measure of truth in what wise people have to say.
0: I guess though, the question then would be whether Plato is just one more wise person mm-hmm. or whether Plato has a special status for Aristotle. In fact, sometimes Ar- Aristotle does list various views of various predecessors and he, it's sometimes almost alarming the way he lists a bunch of pre-Socratics and then Plato, as if Plato was just, as I've put it on other occasions, the last pre-Aristotelian and Plato therefore would be kind of on a par with, say, Parmenides and Heraclitus as if he'd never met Plato. Right. So does Plato have a special status among the wise for Aristotle, do we think? Yes. Yes, I think,
2: he de- I think he does, but I think maybe when needs to go one step further from what Rafel said in thinking about what it is he hopes to get from the many and the wise. Certainly, I agree with how you characterise it, but there's a bit more that he thinks he's going to get, which is that somehow or other they're all seeking to explain the right things. And the coordination of the views of the many and the wise isn't just assembling the maximal set of truths. It's about seeing how they explain each other it's about seeing how we might relate them to each other in such a way that they might be explanatory and sometimes it's Aristotle who does the explaining but sometimes the relation is genuinely dialectical between him and Plato in a way that he's imagining them engaged on a kind of discussion of a topic rather than dealing with whether some particular view is true and it seems to me that One of the things that's often underestimated in reading Aristotle's, thinking about Aristotle's relation to Plato is how comprehensively dialectical it is and how what he's engaging with is not something like an individual thesis or an individual proposal of Plato's, but whole swathes of platonic argument that he's trying to engage with. And the reason for that is that what he's seeking to do is to explain what's true rather than just enumerate what's true. And I think that's that's perhaps what explains... that the, There are two kinds of contexts. One of them in which he says something like, you know, X said this and Y said that and Plato said this other thing and here's what I think. But there are other occasions where he's deeply engaged without saying necessarily that it's Plato he's engaged with with particular texts and dialogues and swathes of argument and maybe that what he's dealing with are arguments that were around in the academy but in fact I think the textual details show up much more that what he's doing is tying what he says to particular dialogues. rather. Than but
0: not necessarily dialogues. by naming them explicitly, right? Exactly. In fact we might even think the more explicit he is when he names Plato the less carefully he's engaging with We might with think him.
2: that. We might or certainly he that. often
0: engages carefully yeah. with Plato without naming him explicitly. But it
2: seems to me that that one argument would be that the reason that that happens is that it's not Plato he's talking to but academic arguments. But I think maybe What we need not to underestimate is that the dialogues were things that people were reading. So it isn't a kind of arcane thing. If he's referring to some argument in the Fido and uses a word that you find in the Fido that doesn't appear elsewhere, people would notice in a way that it's much harder for us to pick it up. But once you see this pattern there, it seems to me it's much more pervasive than we might have thought.
0: So by reading Plato very, very carefully, all we're getting ourselves to do is recreate the frame of mind that Aristotle's readers may be intended to have. Something like that, yes. On the other hand, he does sometimes mention Plato explicitly.
2: Mm. So Mm. maybe we can
0: look at a few famous cases Mm. where this happens. And for me, one of the most striking examples is when in the first book of The Ethics... Aristotle explicitly brings up Plato's idea of the form of the good, and he seems to be interested in refuting it. And I guess a lot the way that a lot of people read the Ethics is that he kind of refutes it to get it out of the way, and then he moves on with his own theory. But mm, I know you think that it's a little bit more complicated yeah, than
2: that. Yeah. Yeah. Roughly, what I think is that he uses the engagement with Plato in order to set up what he needs to be able to say in Ethics Book 1, Chapter 7, about function.
0: So this is the so-called function argument, where he explains that the good life or happiness for humans would be using reason well because reason is what's specific to us. Right,
2: and I think two two separate things happen. The first thing is that he says, well, these accounts of, of what goodness is, the accounts that you find... Uh, in the Republic, in Republic Book Six, you might think, that suppose that goodness is something like a uniform property that things have a share in, um, so that things are more or less good, but they're not good in different ways. And Aristotle says this is just a mistake. So Aristotle's argument is, if you like, that goodness is not a property but um, a qualifier. So he makes his argument that you can understand goodness in terms of function or in terms of contribution to some end or in terms of outcome or input or any of the other things that one might think of in terms of how goodness arranges itself in our lives, that you can only do that if you understand something about the underlying metaphysical structure of the world itself. And he he can't make that point in the first instance, it seems to me, without there being something that he's denying. Because it's a very complex point to make. And so you make the argument about multiplicity of the good only against the background of its being uniform. So that's the first thing he does. Then, it seems to me, he lifts and deals with a whole lot of arguments that you find in the richer recesses of the republic, to come up with something that actually Plato himself might have agreed with, which is a s- much more
1: subject-orientated account yeah. kind of goodness. I mean, there's there's an interesting moment in, I think it's in Chapter 6 of Book 1, and I, I'm sure this is deliberate, where you're reading about the sort of irreducible plurality of the notion of goodness, or however you want mm-hmm. to put it, in Aristotle's insistence on this. And then he sort of suddenly, as it were, pauses and says... It's a lovely bit of thinking out loud, which I'm sure is done very deliberately. He says, "Yes, but all that having been said, you would have thought there's more than just a sort of accidental, arbitrary relationship between all these different things that are good." To use a bit of Aristotle, Aristotelian terminology, you'd have thought it's more than just homonymy when you talk about, you know, a good. Sailor or a good meal, or so whatever it, whatever variety of ways of of kinds of things you might want to label good. So he has this kind of platonic thought, and he says, Well, actually, you know, that's quite a reasonable point, but because we're doing ethics, not metaphysics, Mm -hmm. we're not going to think about that right now. Now, that to me, he knows that somebody's going to be reading this, and I think the natural reaction of somebody reading this is to say, well, hang on. I, na- I want to. Know, I want to know what the answer to this question is. I think Aristotle often does this. He often sort of raises a point that seems absolutely crucial, says he's not going to talk about it. But I wonder if that in itself is a is a kind of dialectical. Another tricky learn from Plato. Another tricky <laughs> learn from Plato. Yes. Yeah, so so I think it's, and it's just that point where you think Plato's got something going for mm. him that Aristotle is stopping and making us think about it. So I think there's more going on even in something like that than just, well, that's a sort of footnote or a parenthesis. No, on the contrary, when you stop and kind of make a bit of a ceremony about it, you're getting your reader to think, actually, this might be a question we really need to think about in this. Yeah, that's, in this that's really interesting,
0: because yeah, yeah. I, I, in the way that you two both set it up, it's, mm. I mean, at first it sounded like Plato was just one alternative. So the alternative where you say, well, everything is good in the same way, and everything is good because it participates in the form of the good, so it should all share this property of goodness. And then we're going to have a different view, which is the multiplicity of good. The only thing that a good horse has in common with a good knife is that just as a knife cuts well, a horse runs well or does whatever horses are supposed to do. But as you just said, I mean, Plato doesn't have that first overly simplistic view of the yeah. good, right? Yeah. And in fact, the, the, I mean, the example of the knife that cuts well is from the Republic. Is his. Yes. And so you might think that the function argument itself is exactly. lifted from the Republic.
2: You might then think that, supposing somebody's reading it and says, "Well, hang on a minute." Um, supposing some ancient person who's got the Republic in their blood is reading it and makes exactly that response, and then they say, "Well, hang on a minute. You know, actually, I now I think about it." The Republic doesn't really espouse this view of the good anyway. By the time you get to the bit in the Republic when we're talking about the the sun, where the form of the good is construed in this ultra-realistic way, we're also talking about the cave. We're talking about how it is that somebody learns to be wise. Well, what else is that than that? learning, somehow or other in ways that Aristotle himself goes on in book two to talk about, learning how to be who they are as best they possibly can so it, it seems to me that if, as you're absolutely right, that this would get picked up that this is a this isn't a Plato's just, the representation of the stuff about ideas is just the springboard and the rest is a proper engagement.
0: I guess the weird thing then is that that's the place where he says, basically, I'm about to attack Plato, but it's okay that I'm doing this because truth is dearer than our friends, This the famous slogan. Mm. And now I'm wondering if that's kind of a misleading thing for him to say there, because that certainly makes it sound as if Plato's just going to play the role of a target. So is it even more complicated that he kind of tries to act as if Plato's the target, but in fact, he knows, and maybe he knows that you know, if you know you're Plato, that there's something more subtle going on?
2: Well, I mean, it might it might be that he thinks that some of this Plato would go along with, but some of what he wants to say about the the actual realism of goodness, he wants to deny. So part of the challenge then that's posed to Plato is whether... He can have Platonism and Aristotelianism at once. And Aristotle is saying, we don't need that bit, or we we don't need the stuff about the form of the good. We just need the stuff about human function. Yeah,
0: give me that, Republic Book 1 with the function stuff and right. forget about Republic right. Book 6. And I mean,
1: to put, maybe to put right. that even... I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, to, maybe to put it even more strongly, you might, going back to the methodology, yeah. you might think that what... For example, that, that what... Maybe what Aristotle thinks Plato's got crucially and importantly right is there's something to be said about the structure of goodness and the relation between goodness and individual goods. And he may have thought that that's sort of people will be unnecessarily deterred from seeing that crucial point by all the sort of realistic metaphysical apparatus. Let's mm-hmm. say that that is Plato's apparatus, and that actually what he might take himself to be doing you know, without wanting to put it too patronisingly, though I don't think Aristotle would have particularly minded, but uh, would be to rescue the truth in Plato. Mm. And, I mean, if you think about it, it's a very... Otherwise, it's a very odd thing to say. Well, it's a very odd dichotomy, and, I, I again, I suspect there's, it's sort of deliberate. You know, when somebody says, look, you know, we care about our friends, but we care more about our more about the truth than our friends, well, you might think, you know, caring about the truth and caring about your friends might actually sort of go hand in hand. And that there's no reason to think that the fact that these, first, firstly, the fact that these people are your friends in the first place must be for some good reason, one of its users. wanted to get into Aristotle's theory of friendship. But, you know, you imagine the reason why Aristotle might have been friends with these guys in the first place was that he rather appreciated the kinds of things they were up to. And then I think, thinking about the methodology of, you know, saving as many of the... The, the views of the many and the wise as, as you can. He's trying He's trying to do it, and the criticism is is a necessary yeah. bit of rescuing yeah. of what's actually true and important about the theory.
0: Well, let's look at another example, and this is going to be a case where Aristotle seems to be engaging with Plato, but without mentioning him explicitly. Mm-hmm. And this is another uh, example that we've talked about in the past, so maybe you can start off with this M.M., It's about a particular topic about sensation, which is basically being able to perceive what are called common sensibles by Aristotle. So can you explain that and explain where it might come from in Plato? Because this isn't really something I've covered in the podcast on either side. Okay,
2: so the idea is that when you perceive, you perceive the things that are proper to the senses in question. So you see colour, you hear sound, you taste... Savour, (laughs) that actually there are other things that we might think go on when you perceive, for example, that you perceive that some particular thing is both savoury and hard. So when something's got two sensible properties, so that there's something in common between those two properties. And building on that then, there are other properties which are just common, like being or moving, or...
0: Or uh, shape, which you can see and shape touch.
2: And you know. uh, all sorts of things. And in fact, although this isn't what Aristotle insists on, being an object would count as a common, I take it. The, the expression common is something that Aristotle takes directly from Plato's Theaetetus. In Plato's Theaetetus, the same kinds of arguments are mounted against somebody who insists that knowledge is perception. And the argument against them is that perception only gives you the special sensibles and doesn't give you what they have in common. So the the contrast itself is set up by Plato and it could be represented in that context as allowing you to perceive raw data belonging to each particular special sense. And then all the rest is done kind of by your mind. It's done by judgment or assessment or whatever it is. So that I get the input from the raw data and then on top of that I do thinking about those things in order to be able to say, ah, oh, it's an object that's got two properties or this object is moving where moving is a common property. The The argument that Aristotle mounts in the De Anima where he's talking about this is extremely attenuated. It comes really quickly and it's not at all clear... Where all the antecedents of the argument are coming from, and it seems to me that just as a just as a matter of the way the thing is set up, one can't imagine it being other than elusive to the argument of the Theaetetus, and some of the some of the examples are the same, and the language is the same. So, what one sees there is Aristotle using a text of Plato that he imagines his audience to be familiar with, and Disagreeing with it because Aristotle's argument is that all of this is perception, which gives Aristotle a completely different account of what perception looks like.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I think one thing to say about that is that, genuinely, no pun intended. There's a commonality there as well, and mm. one one way to think about that might be that, again, in terms of perhaps a rather sort of old-fashioned way of thinking about Plato versus Aristotle, that Aristotle comes up with this idea of an object, right, mm. as what's kind of fundamental about our ontology. Mm. What's the base, what are the basic things out there in the world? Well, mm. they're objects. Whereas Plato, because he bangs on about forms all the time, <laughs> you know, you've got the form of justice and the form of this and the form of that, that Plato maybe can't account for or doesn't even have a, a, a notion of an object, now it seems to me that the crucial thing that's happening in the Theaetetus is that we've got maybe the invention of the object. We suddenly mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. now I don't don't want to beg any questions about what Plato was up to before that but we we have this moment where it seems really important to him that we don't just have a quality there and a quality there and we're sort of we're a bundle of qualities. We have this crucial idea that they're unified in some way mm-hmm. and he's thinking about how how that can be so and how we can be aware mm-hmm. that that's mm-hmm. so. And again, it seems to me that Aristotle, yeah, as M.M. said, he's, kind of, he's starting from something that he, he thinks is right. Yes. And it's from that yes. basis that he's... And I think I agree with M.M. That there's, that there's a genuine dispute about yes. um, what the answer to how you get hold of the unity of the object is. But there's So a the idea is that M. 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 M., Plato
0: yeah. thinks you do it with your mind. So it's with your mind that you that you realize that it's the same thing that's both blue yeah. and hard or yeah. whatever yeah. Yeah. whereas yeah. Aristotle yeah. thinks you can just yeah. see that or sense it rather yeah. you can use your sensitive, your yeah. powers of sensation yes. to discern that it's the same object
2: and it's a, that ends up when you think about it as a really deep dispute about what the mechanics of perception are because Plato can have a view of perception that's really as I put it raw that's really Basic, all that's happening is some input from the outside world to the special sense organs. But Aristotle, in modifying that, yeah, and I think Rayfle's right, modifying it in order. I, I mean, some of what's going on here is a kind of bringing down from the heavens yeah. the metaphysics. Yes. So underlying all of this stuff is something like a metaphysical difference between them. But the metaphysical metaphys- difference isn't. Oh, Plato believes in forms, and Aristotle believes in objects of the physical world. It is much more that they are disagreeing about how we know the world. Yeah. The perhaps world. Relative, perhaps here.
1: relatively little disagreement about what the world is that yes. we're yes. trying to get, you know, rather than this historical idea of. You know, Plato thinks the real world is somewhere else and Aristotle doesn't. Yeah. It's a question about different forms of apparatus for getting at a yes. world which we're relatively yes. speaking perhaps agreed on mm. its nature. I mean, that's another that's contentious I think, thing to say. But but, I, think, but, I, think
2: but, I think it is, yeah. I think that I completely agree yeah. with that. And yeah. I think that if one thinks about it, maybe mm. one of the spins off from um, this way of thinking mm. about the relation between Aristotle and Plato yeah. is actually a revision of what we should be thinking about Plato, that Aristotle, if this is right, then Aristotle is treating Plato not as an airy-fairy man who's only interested in forms and sort of sitting under the trees outside the cave going, try, try, gosh, it's the form of the good. that's not... uh, Aristotle, I think rightly, sees that Plato is just as interested in this here and now and that what we can see in seeing Aristotle's dispute with Pla- disputes with Plato is just that, that Plato isn't a Platonist in the way that he's often represented to be.
0: Actually, there's something in Aristotle's epistemology that I think is a similar response to Plato, which mm. connects to what you were just saying about sensation a minute mm. ago, because Plato has bequeathed to Aristotle and indeed the rest of us this problem about basically how do you get started so if you don't know anything then how are you ever going to build up any knowledge, this is Mino's Mm -hmm. paradox Mm -hmm. which Aristotle explicitly mentions Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the posterior analytics but I think his real solution doesn't come until the end of the posterior analytics where he alludes to the paradox but without mentioning it explicitly and his solution I think is really to point to sensation Mm -hmm. and he says How do we start from nothing and get to the principles on which knowledge is built? We use the same capacity that is possessed even by non-human animals, Mm -hmm. namely sensation, which I think is supposed to kind of shock you a little bit, especially if you're a Platonist. So forget all this stuff about being an immortal soul before you fell into the body, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. All you need to do is understand that that sensation is rich enough and thick enough that there's content in there that you can use as a basis for deriving principles. And once you've got the principles, Mm -hmm. you're off and running. So I guess the interesting thing about that is that the problem comes from Plato, and to some extent the ultimate epistemology looks a lot like Plato's because you still have some kind of idea where there's knowledge being based on fundamental principles Mm -hmm. past which you should not try to get. But... He thinks that the way that you can derive the principles from your experience is just from the experience, whereas Plato seems to have a real problem about that in the Phaedo. He seems Mm -hmm. to deny that you could, for example, derive the idea of equality just by looking at equal objects in the world around you. So so he seems to be much more optimistic about the role of sensation in coming to knowledge, despite having kind of the same expectations about Mm -hmm. what knowledge would look like.
2: So it seems to me that it falls into the same pattern as the other two cases that we've thought about, doesn't it? Because what you find is is the sort of nitty-gritty of the philosophical stuff that's going on, quite a lot of agreement about how we can think about sensation, where the dispute may be whether it's sensation or thought that does it, but not about... The world in which we do it, and that one of the things that you get in these Aristotelian passages in all three of the Aristotelian passages that we've talked about is Aristotle just dispensing with the the sort of frills and furbelows that a lot of people think just are what Plato is, and this shows you that it isn't that mm. that, that they are yeah. what Plato, is. so you don't need to say that in order for Plato to be a proper. Plato, he's got to have a theory of recollection. I mean, better not think that, it seems to me, because (laughs) that is falsified by its non-appearance, for example, in the great epistemology of the Republic. And one of the things that you might think of Aristotle as doing in posterior analytics, beta 19, in the last chapter of posterior analytics, is actually getting rid of that bit. You know, we don't need to think about remembering it from some airy-fairy time before, but still there's a question about, how perception will generate the principles and as you suggest peter it seems to me that if you put the posterior analytics together with the the di anima, you can see how perception has become in this discussion with plato that he's having without the frills and the furbelows rich and yeah. interesting
1: and again what's interesting and one of the interesting things about that is i mean without wishing to get into vexed questions of aristotelian chronology i mean he may think by the time he's written, by the time he's writing the Posterior Analytics, he's Mm. sort of, he's earned the right, I mean, I think one of the things that puzzled people, including me, about the last chapter of the Posterior Analytics, where sort of perception rise to the rescue is, Mm. I think you read that actual, I mean, this may be something about how Aristotle writes his, his, Mm -hmm. uh, his works, but you read the text and you think, yeah, wait a minute, you're saying that Aristotle, but have you really shown me how yes. perception of all things can do that we'll go and look at the day yes. and go at the, go and look yes. at the debate with Plato that happens there and you'll understand how this debate with Plato absolutely. is actually managing to sort of get get going absolutely I'm sure that I'm sure, yeah, and that
2: yeah. is yeah. explains then in the last chapter of the poster analytics there's this really kind of awkward metaphor mm. oh well the perceptions sort of stand together like a little army and then they're not routed but they they stand firm and then we get the principles well you better not base your theory of principles on a pretty flimsy metaphor because there's no account given in that passage of what it is for a perception to stand together and you know poke their swords at the enemy coming along and stop running away and all of that but you're quite right that if what we've got there is something that builds on the really interesting complex theory of how perception is complex that you get in the dynama, then he 's got it, mm-hmm. and the the metaphor then is not so much um, a failure as an invitation yes. to go to something else
0: to in fact, something that nice. i once I, I wrote something about this chapter and pointed out that uh, metaphor about the phalanx of troops Mm. that at first is coherent then breaks apart because they're starting to retreat and then reforms Mm. sounds a lot more like Plato's epistemology Mm. in the theory of recollection than it does like Aristotle's because Plato's idea is you have it you lose it and then you have it again Mm. like the phalanx whereas Aristotle's epistemology is you don't have it but then you do Mm. which doesn't Mm. sound at all like Mm. the phalanx Mm.
1: Mm. and I think that's Part of what we're trying to deny is mm. is happening. That it that it that you are. I mean, there's a fr- I'm not overly fond of this phrase, but it's a phrase that certain scholars use about Plato's epistemology is he thinks that knowledge must be based on knowledge, mm. and that does imply a kind of. There was a phase when you had knowledge, then it all went mm. wrong in ways that. It's not always clear Plato knows how to explain, but then, then then, it can all come good again if you do the right things and talk to Socrates and so on. Actually, structurally, again, it seems to me that Aristotle ends up without the heavy metaphysical apparatus in, in, in quite a similar position. Still thinking but that knowledge yes. is based on yes. knowledge.
2: Yes. yes. I think I think that's right.
0: Well, before we wrap this up, I just wanted to maybe step back from these particular examples and think about this as a broader issue. I mm. guess one thing that's emerged from this conversation is that whatever Aristotle thinks of when he thinks of Plato, he doesn't think of it as a body of doctrine mm. it sounds more like he thinks of it as the way we think about it which is a bunch of dialogues mm. and maybe specific passages in specific dialogues but he is reading Plato rather than just thinking, oh well we all know what Plato thinks yes. and it seems, again it seems odd that he tends to do that more when he's not mentioning Plato than when he is um in fact when he mentions plato explicitly sometimes he mentions mm. things that plato doesn't say in the yeah. dialogues <laughs>
1: but then i mean picking up something that mm M. M. said earlier about that one reason for you know the less specific he is about who he's referring to the more it's really the more there's real engagement with plato mm. is, is is this project of sort of finding out how all the bits fit together mm. in plato and then mm. i take it of what aristotle is trying to mm. i mean he's not aristotle does not have in one sense, he doesn't have a system in the sense that he's building something, and he thinks that all the pieces are in the right place, and that, that that's where he's finished. I don't mean I don't think that's true, and I don't think the way he does philosophy indicates that. But he he he's systematic in 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 the sense that he thinks that the bits of your philosophy had better fit together; they'd better be coherent, mm. um, and that you know the sort of endless project is trying to make sure that that's what they do, and that actually. In that sense, the less specific you are in referring to to Plato, the more that might be an indication of the fact that you're seeing. I mean, yes, you're seeing you're seeing the individual dialogues, but you're actually not. You're not sort of stopping there. You know, and your earlier question is is that you know Plato was, when all is said and done, a, a bloke with some thoughts, which in some way or other he tried to express in dialogues. We have we only have the dialogues, and I think it, one of the things that's emerged from what we've been saying is that's kind of all, pretty much all we need. We, there's some yeah. stuff we haven't talked about, but it's pretty much all we need to to figure out what Aristotle's doing with Plato. But that, after all, it's a perfectly proper project, particularly if this is somebody who you were taught by and you personally to try and think about how all the bits of the thought fit together.
2: But, you, yeah. I mean, I don't think mm. this is... It's I, mean, not I agree a, you know, with it's that, but I don't, I don't, I don't no. think this, it runs, what I'm about to no. say runs counter to no. this. But mm. supposing you also think that one of the things about the dialogues mm. is they're open-ended. Mm. Open-ended is too strong. But is that they're supposed to be much more challenging than they are dogmatic. Yes. So that they're supposed to show you ways of thinking about it. They're not, they're not sceptical, but they're, they're supposed to get you, when you read, to engage in philosophical inquiry well if Plato was if that's right about Plato and Aristotle was his pupil well for sure Aristotle will have learned that too so it may be that actually he's just doing what he was taught that that I mean this again turns itself on its head into an interpretation of what we should think about Plato if Aristotle treats Plato like this maybe that's how he was taught to treat him
0: and how we should treat him too
2: yeah Sure.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of students of Plato, that's going to be the focus next time on the podcast, because I'm moving on from Aristotle, but not very far. And I'm going to be looking next time, in fact, at the students of Plato and of Aristotle. But before concluding, I just want to thank Raphael very much for coming on again. Thanks, And M.M. for coming on again. (laughs) Please join just me, sadly, next time on the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps.